It's so crucial that you do that work and find an identity greater than. I, it's not that it can't include your work. Of course it's going to include your work, your current job, your current challenges, but it has to be greater than that. Otherwise, you will never see the opportunities that exist right in front of your face that don't fit within that identity. Hello, hello, I'm Nareep Ben. Welcome back to Life Deconstructed. These are candid conversations with incredible women about how they really got to where they are and the debates, decisions, and doubts along the way. If you're already a listener, you know that the women we've talked to here range from CEOs and tech founders to designers, journalists, even an ex-CIA operative thrown in. They're all incredibly successful, but doing it by their own standards. And we all know success can be a loaded and frankly arbitrary and annoying term. I find so much value in their honest reflections about their path, because most things in life you only learn by doing, by the experience itself and some hindsight. Their willingness to unpack that honestly is so much more telling than an impressive LinkedIn title or magazine blurb that really tells you absolutely nothing. As a teaser for season three, we really could not have asked for a more fitting guest. Christina Wallace is many things, as she'll tell you. She's a serial entrepreneur, a lecturer at Harvard Business School, a mom, an athlete, a musician, and an author. Her recently published book, The Portfolio Life, is all about building a life for ourselves that, in her words, is bigger than a business card. I'll let her explain the rest. Here's our conversation. Christina Wallace, thank you so much for joining us on Life Deconstructive. It's such a pleasure to have you. I am so happy to be here. So I just finished reading the book a couple days ago. It really struck a nerve with me in the first place. I mean, I reached out to you as soon as I kind of heard the title, The Portfolio Life. It kind of speaks for itself. And I knew it would be deeply connected to me. And it it turns out also to the show because really at the heart of what we're doing is this concept of a nonlinear life. You know, that the sign of life is not a straight line. It's a zigzag. So here we go behind the scenes on how these amazing women got to where they are, which it turns out is really nearly always this unexpected and winding path. And I love your approach to the nonlinear life. You use that term a lot in, in kind of a different context that these different paths and different interests and different skills can and should coexist for us at the same time. And that definitely struck a nerve with me as someone who has always veered between, I think, embracing and rejecting my wide range of interests, sometimes in the same day, <laughs> depending, depending on the mood. So, Christina, if you could just kind of share, share with me first, were you always searching for how to have this multi-path life or is that something that just came to you in process? No, it it's always been, I wouldn't even say I've been searching for it. It's just always been true of me. And, um, you know, even as a child, I remember the fourth grade, someone asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, I want to be a professor, an author, um, president, an astronaut, but all at the same time. Like crucially, it needed to be all at the same time. Um, and the ship has sailed on being an astronaut. The other three might still be possible. We'll see. You never know, you know, if, uh, you know, you want to go the billionaire route and buy yourself a seat. There you go. So, so I've always, I've always been this person who lived at the intersection of different worlds. I was a math nerd. I was a classical music, uh, student for very seriously for a very long time. And even when I went off to a boarding school for the arts, I joined the math team and ran student council, right? Like I just, this was how I existed. And so I got all the way through college where I double majored, I triple minored. I was just like, it's the same price. Why not learn as much as I can? And then, you know, at 21, it was like, oh, 
I have to figure out what comes after school. Like I was really good at school and I just I pushed off thinking about what happens after as long as possible. And that was the first moment where I had to make a decision. I was like, do I go the arts route? I'd been a theater major and a music minor. Do I go and be, try to become a director or producer or an administrator? Or do I go to the math path? And that rhymed. Um, and do a PhD uh, down there. And so I I was kind of like, let's let the universe tell me. And I, I pursued both. And I was like, let's see which one pans out. And I, I went and visited all these PhD programs for math. And the more I visited and the more I spent time with with people who, you know, dedicated their life to this tiny little esoteric corner of mathematics that like 12 people in the world care about, the more I realized this notion of like focus for seven years on one little, I was like, mm-mm, mm-mm. So I, I moved to New York and I decided to go the arts route. I started in uh, at the Metropolitan Opera on a management role and uh, and realized that was it was sort of meant to be my day job while I tried to hustle to become a director on Broadway. But I realized uh, in doing that job that I really liked the management side of things. I was good at the strategy and operations and producing and also really loved the art and could connect with the artists. And so I realized that like the business of the arts might be an interesting way to mash up my interests. Went off to business school to get an MBA in order to pursue this path. And then the financial crisis hit and there were no jobs like anywhere. And so uh, it was a a point where HBS just started to say, hey, entrepreneurship, like start your own job. And I don't come from a family that that thinks about entrepreneurship. I come from a very sort of lower middle class, um, working class family. So starting a company never crossed my radar. But when I looked into it further, I was like a lot of what I like about making and producing art is true in building startups where you take an idea from nothing to something and you rally a team against a big vision and then you say and we have seven dollars and some duct tape like get creative it sounds like you're really good at sort of even at such a young age because you know in the u.s it's like you're 17 choose what you want to do with your life you're 21 like what's your real job all you know these kind of crazy things and it sounds like you were really good at fine-tuning already okay, these are the qualities, these are the characteristics in this work that I like. Is that something that just came to you naturally or did you have guidance? I mean, what do you attribute that to? Because I feel like that plays a huge role in being able to successfully navigate to something that really speaks to you. I spent most of my education through the ninth or 10th grade kind of off in the corner teaching myself out of textbooks. And as a result, I I didn't have a connection to my peers. I didn't really even have a connection to my teachers. And and so I learned to be very kind of self-directed and um, and I think equally so independent because I wasn't ever trying to fit in. Um, I realized that I I or at least I believed I was never going to fit in. And so fitting in never became the goal. I, I think just embracing the weirdo early on became one of my superpowers so that actually you were starting to say led you to startups from what it seems like out from the outside anyway to be very, very different worlds. But I imagine there is a link there for you. Hugely so. I mean, this the act of creation to go from an idea to a thing is incredibly vulnerable and difficult and requires like a certain set of, of I don't know, mindsets and bravery to do. And I think that's true whether you're making a play or whether you're making an app. You're going from, I see a, an opportunity. I think I have something to offer that opportunity. And I'm going to 
created out of nothing, out of ideas and firepower and like whoever I can attract to going after this problem with me. And so I think that was what I realized I was a really good fit for the early stages of entrepreneurship. And I tell this to my students quite a bit that, you know, as you look through the entire life cycle of where you might fit in a job or a company or uh, in the world, there's a lot to be said for learning at what stage you fit at. Are you an early person where you like to be a little bit of like, you know, a jack of all trades because you have to be, you don't have specialists yet? Or do you want to go somewhere where they've already worked out all the kinks, they have process in place, it's a very clearly defined job, you know what's expected of you. Neither of those are better than the other, but you are going to naturally be a fit in one and not another. Most people are. And so part of your job in your early 20s as you ping pong from one role to the next is to figure out without judgment, what kind of person am I? And where do I like to be? Yeah. And I would argue, you know, also based on even what, you know, your book is that it's it's an exercise worth doing way beyond your early 20s, too. This kind of notion of transferable skills in a way is what you're talking about. Like I was doing A on the, you know, from the outside, people might think there's no connection, but actually there was deep connection that you yourself saw. Do you have any advice from your own experience, you know, how you did this yourself or maybe, you know, fast forward to, d- to today, it's what you teach your students on how to convince others of that who from the outside, you know, I imagine someone, let's say in the startup world has no idea about the arts and for them, yeah, they wouldn't make sense that you would have relevant skills, but in fact, they're super relevant. Yeah, this this becomes a huge part of this work. And I think it starts with convincing yourself that it's relevant. You know, I, I meet with a lot of folks who are career changers and they always start from, uh, almost always start from a place of like, well, I'm going to have to go back to the beginning if I change industries or change roles. And I'm like, no, right? no, you come with so much. Even, you know, women who take 10, 15 years off of their career to raise a family, then they go back in. They're like, well, I have to start from scratch. And I was like, absolutely not. You just spent 15 years as the chief of staff <laughs> of a highly volatile executive team, right? Like on deadline all the time. On deadline. <laughs> so you you know how to manage different personalities. Um, so part of this is convincing yourself, right? And and figuring out for yourself, okay, which of these things transfer and and how do I truly believe that I have something to offer when I make this transition? And then it comes to proactively telling that story. I meet a lot of folks who think, well, here's my resume. You can make sense of the dots. And I'm like, absolutely not. It's not my job to make sense of the dots. Like you have to tell me the story, whether it's in your cover letter or in the intro when I meet at a networking thing or when you show up to pitch me about your startup. You have to be really intentional about sharing. I'm making this transition and this is why it's going to be a superpower that I have these experiences and I'm bringing them to the table here. And then the last piece is simply uh, part of this often is just learning the jargon right. and translating your experiences into the jargon of the new world. So this was one of my biggest hurdles when I was leaving the arts world. I'd only ever worked in the arts, in theater, in music, in opera. And I got to business school and I'm literally trying to make sense of this resume as I'm going out to interview for consulting jobs at BCG and McKinsey. And they're like, rehearsal associate. Like, I don't know what that means. And so (laughs) I sat down with a couple of my MBA friends and they said, just tell me the stories about what you did at this job day in and day out. Like, what were you doing? And I start telling them these stories and they say, oh, you were doing operations management. You were doing contract negotiation. 
you were dealing with client services. I was like, oh, great. Thank you so much for that vocabulary, right? And so so then I had those words. Yeah. I mentioned this in the book that one of your jobs as you're thinking about making a transition is to find people from that new world and like help ask them to help you translate and and like tell the story in the jargon that earns you credibility of like, oh, she knows what she's talking about. Right. Tr- tr- translating yourself. Well, since we've already kind of jumped to it a little bit here and there, you know, what is let's start with just what is the portfolio life for people who have never heard this idea before? Yeah, I say it's based on three tenets. Number one, you are more than any one job or opportunity. You are so much greater than just the title in your LinkedIn. Number two, diversification is going to be the key to future proofing, to surviving the constant change, mitigating the uncertainty that is the new normal. And number three, when, not if, when your life changes, when your priorities shift, when your needs change, you can and should rebalance your portfolio to suit that new phase of life. It's not being flaky. It's not losing your ambition. It's merely rebalancing the allocation of your time and talents to suit the chapter of life you're in. I think that kind of the first pillar that you spoke about and something that that struck me um, when you first lay out this concept in the book is that issue of identity, which I feel like so many people sure. can relate to. I certainly can. I mean, you know, on a personal note, I spent many, many years in news and television news, which is a very all consuming, like this is the only thing you have time for kind of bubble <laughs> with its own jargon, like you said, like really its own planet. And my experience, you know, deciding to leave that was definitely a long process of sort of separating from, you know, this is no longer my identity as a way. And I even think about that, you know, when you meet people out at a party, at a conference, it's always like the first thing is, what do you do? How has your kind of perception of identity changed in this process of writing this book? Like, you know, how do you think people should look at their own identities when the reality is we're we're in a world that's so work focused. Yeah, it's just it's it, to your exact point. It's so crucial that you f- that you do that work and find an identity greater than. I, it's not that it can't include your work. Of course, it's going to include your work, your current job, your current uh, challenges. But it has to be greater than that. Otherwise, you will never see the opportunities that exist right in front of your face that don't fit within that identity, right? Like much of our ability to see what we could do next is limited by who we tell ourselves we are. So you start with, you know, who do you, who are you, right? And I think everyone knows you are more than just, oh, I'm a professor. I am a marketer. I am a journalist. You're like, okay, what else are you? I'm a mother. I'm an author. I'm an angel investor. I am a erstwhile opera singer. Like once upon a time, I would introduce myself as I'm a musician, right? And and that is still part of how I show up in the world, how I think about things. It's the discipline I bring. 17 years of classical piano training does not just disappear the day I stop playing lists. So that is relevant. You earn the right to to put that on your list for sure. Exactly. So as you think about, okay, I, I am all of these things concurrently. I'm currently monetizing my time in a certain direction today, but that doesn't have to be where I do it tomorrow. And so as you start to embrace all of these things, the next, usually the next question is like, well, if I tell someone all of those things, 
they're going to like glaze over and be like, oh, she's a dilettante. Yeah. She she's a flake or like, oh, she must have a rich, rich husband. Right. Like she she's not really focused on anything. So then the the next step is like, so what's the thread? What's the through line to these different things? So I often introduce myself as a human Venn diagram who's built a career at the intersection of business, technology, and the arts. And that gives you a clue of the worlds that I live in and crucially that I love and care about the mashups of those worlds. I'm an interdisciplinary thinker and I'm constantly you know, trying to apply creativity with business and technology. I've heard other people as they kind of put together all of these things that they're doing say, I'm a storyteller. I am an investigator. I'm a coach. I am a, someone who challenges the status quo. Like literally that someone introduced themselves to me at a party like that. And I was like, tell me more. That's great. And yeah, that's much more interesting than I'm head of operations at XYZ company. Like, okay. Exactly. So I say I'm currently leading innovation at blank, blank, blank company, but I am someone who's always looking to challenge the status quo. I was like, that's brilliant. So it's like pull yourself up a level of saying like, what is what is connected through all these different things that I love to be part of? Because that becomes the core of what you have to offer. And that can be applied to any setting. I love that. And that, that really, I mean, it makes me think of the the communications consulting work that I do. And that is I constantly really saying those phrases about zooming out, connecting the dots, sure. taking a bird's eye view of something and, and looking at it with fresh eyes. And I love that, you know, the, the kind of application of that to yourself when we're all so deeply inside, you know, our own work and our own quote unquote identities that we've come become accustomed to and everything. It's a drawn out process. You have really you go in depth and very practical, very clear on how to approach actually building a portfolio life and designing it. We obviously can't get into it all. You know, people will go go to the book for all the details. Shameless plug. <laughs> but, uh, you know, maybe give us a bit of a teaser of how someone is to approach this when they say, oh, actually, yeah, I do want to do all those things. I do have all these interests. I've always been afraid of that. I've always felt like I can't pursue them all at the same time. What now? So, it, I mean, it really starts with an assessment of how much time you have in this chapter of life. What is your capacity? And I, I use that phrase intentionally because I give lots of business examples in the book. That's obviously the world I come from. But looking at things like the capacity of a manufacturing line, right, there's a limit to how much can be made in any given time period. And and there's a limit to how much you can do as well. And what's, I think, sometimes frustrating for particularly women who are very ambitious and have lots of goals is like that capacity can change through different seasons of life. I have a one-year-old and a three-year-old right now. I have much more limited capacity than I did 10 years ago <laughs> when I could do all the things all the time. No so, kidding. No. So you start by acknowledging how many hours do I have available after I take care of my health, my whatever, my non-negotiables. And then you get a sense of, okay, what are all the things then that matter to me? I need to meet my financial needs. I So I need a job, right? How am I currently doing that? That might be a day job with a side hustle. It might be freelance work or a small business that you're running. It might be I'm looking to change my job. And so I'm going to start by acknowledging what my needs are. And then I have a goal that I can think about. How am I putting together the pieces to meet those needs? 
and then you know you you lay out all the things that matter you know i oh i did this recently when i had to reshift my allocation with the children and said you know one of the things that i've done my entire life is as a musician i've always been performing i spent my entire life on a stage and for this season of life i don't have time to commit to a choir that rehearses regularly that does four concerts a year and it it sucks <laughs> like straight up it sucks but by I, I can't fit it in without burning out. And so for this season of life, the allocation as a musician is a 0% allocation. It's still there. This is the important part. It's still part of who I am. I'm just giving a 0% allocation to it. Yeah, I love that phrase. I just want to highlight it this, for this season of life because it takes so much of the pressure off. Obviously, you have to be active about it throughout but in, and in revisiting and reevaluating, but it takes the pressure off of feeling, especially I know, you know, also myself as as in early motherhood, that you can feel like, okay, I'm just like, I have to give up. I have to sacrifice all these things. But yeah, it's not forever. It's for this season of life, as you said. It's for this season. And I think this is this is such an important point as well that, you know, I do this both just for myself, but then I also do this with my husband as we think about our family. He's also a human Venn diagram with lots of things that he likes to do. And I, you know, as we had children, I was like, look, I I am choosing a day job to go become a professor that gives me more autonomy and flexibility, allows me to have daycare on campus, like all these things no, that make early motherhood possible that weren't true of my entrepreneurship days. Um, and, and, I still need to create. I can't only teach and advise. I will I will go crazy. Part of who I am needs to create. And so honestly, writing this book for the last two years has fulfilled my I need to create itch. And as we looked at our allocation of time, I was like, look, you know, if I have this thing where I need to create and it's going to have some really crunch periods as we get to the publication of this book, I need to know that you can cover me and like free up some capacity for me. And so we take turns. Like I finish this book. He's also a writer in his free time. And he's like, okay, now it's my turn. I'm going to go work on my novel. And I was like, excellent. You got two years. Go for it. You know, so so it's like the give and take within the unit and not just within your own portfolio that ensures you get your needs met. And it's almost like you can imagine like a, a palette of things you can pull from to make the picture that you need right now. When somebody is facing this palette of options, these different, you know, passions that they have, or, you know, maybe we should leave aside even that word passion that I think is a little overused and can freak people out. But a little loaded. Yeah, loaded <laughs> is the term I was looking for. Exactly. You know, how do you go about making the distinction between what should be a path to pursue, uh, you know, for a, for a monetized path, let's call it, versus a real an actual hobby i mean some of this is it, it it's going to be highly personal because you have to take a look at again what these things give you and you have to determine am i going to lose what it gives me if i monetize it so for example i have a friend who makes these gorgeous cakes she's this beautiful cake director decorator and and like she makes everyone's kids birthday cake and she does it for free. Like you pay for the cost of ingredients, but she'll do it for free because she loves doing it. And many of us have said, oh my gosh, like you are leaving money on the table. You should turn this into a business. People pay good money for this. And she goes, absolutely not. Because what I love 
is doing it on my terms for only the people I want to, only the designs, the times that I want to. And the second I take money for it and I turn it into a business, then I have to. And then it doesn't give me any joy. And I was like, okay, that's super clear of what this thing gives you and that you will lose it the second you monetize. Great. Leave that off the table. But then there are other people that are like, I've been, you know, giving advice to friends for years for free. And now I'm wondering, like, could I turn that into a consulting business? Could I have, you know, an actual line item that says, like, this is how much you charge me for an hour of my time, you know? And and we say, absolutely, if that's something you want to do. And and I think for many people, there's a, there's a an analysis in somewhat of not only what does it give you, but also where do you want to go with this? So it very well could be, as I have done several times, I think this might be what I want to do next, but I don't know. So I'm going to start doing it in a really small way on the side for maybe pennies at the beginning just to get my feet wet. And if I start really thinking I'm good at it, I'll start charging a little more. And then I use this as a market test to see whether or not there's demand, whether or not I can hack it. Um, And then at a certain point, you can tip it and say, well, I no longer need the day job to support the side thing because the side thing is viable. I've de-risked that business and now I can go all in uh, in a way that would have been very scary to do without that evidence. So that can be one path where you're using the side thing. It can also just be, I want to diversify my income. I don't trust my employer and, and you know, capitalism at large to support me. I, I mean, you you just referenced, I think, a couple of them. You lay out in the book a couple of different options because, you know, different formats of the portfolio folio life are going to work for different people from moonlighting or I think another was a side hustle. The other is what what is it that you call, you know, the is it the multipath or someone who's just like, let's do it all. The multi-hyphenate. Yeah. Multi-hyphenate. Yeah. I mean. And it really depends on exactly like the phase of life you're in and the model that that fits what you need, what you want. But the the moonlighting, I think, is probably the most common. I like the term moonlighting because it encompasses both paid work like side hustles and unpaid, but very serious things that sometimes are called hobbies. Um, But that I have seen it. I give examples in the book of people who's moonlighting their unpaid hobbies decades long, you know, investment in these hobbies become the next professional endeavor that they go on because they've built a network in that world. They've developed a track record of expertise in that world. And it becomes something that they say, I'm ready to do this as my next chapter. So moonlighting doesn't have to be paid. It's not monetize all the things, but it's what is that thing on the side that maybe on the surface would not sustain your life? right? It's not the day job for a reason. The second path of, uh, so zigzagging on the surface looks like, whoa, she just took a hard pivot. Like, where did that come from? Opera to startups, like makes no sense. Um, But under the surface is often a moonlighting thing that you have elevated into your full-time thing. Or You're finding those connections, as we talked about at the beginning of the show, between these worlds. And you're saying creating theater is the same as creating a company. And I'm just going to translate it. So it looks like she's all over the place when in reality there is an absolutely obvious connection between the work. But it's it's going from one thing to another thing. 
as your sort of main pursuit. And then the multi-hyphenate model, the last one, is when you're doing multiple things almost like equally in importance. Um, you'll often see this. It's someone who says, I have a consulting business. I also speak. I have a book. I have a podcast. Like doing these multiple things is part of who I am. And I'm going to make that really visible that these multiple lines of work all fit together. Um, and sometimes they make a ton of sense, like in that example. But sometimes they don't. I give an example in the book, a story of a computer programmer who's also a playwright. And she is both of those things simultaneously. And what's fascinating about the people who are multi-hyphenates in what look like unconnected worlds is they often become the vanguard of creating the future. So she got pulled into a TED residency where she worked on research around AI and technology and it's a, a, like connections to creativity and art. And, you know, like if chat GPT writes a play, is that art? Question a lot of people are asking right now. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> a yeah. lot of you. And like who owns that? So it's I think it's fascinating when you are willing to be that sort of out of left field in in multiple worlds at once person then you become the person that people go to when they say like, I think there might be a connection there and you're the one to see it. Yeah, and I, there's so much value in being able to see things from another perspective, but you know that means from another industry, from a whole nother mentality, a whole nother way of solving problems. I, I do wonder kind of now, you know, flipping it back to the perspective of the person who wants to build this portfolio life for themselves, and it varies, obviously, maybe it's this, you know, question is most relevant for the multi-hyphenate, but what's your take? I mean, what do you advise people in terms of how to build it? Because when you're talking about doing multiple things, when you're building something for yourself, whether it's consulting business with the example you said, you know, speaking business, writing a book, whatever it is, these things each can take a lot of time and investment to establish, to establish yourself in that particular space. Um, and it can I think it can feel, you know, a lot of times like either spreading yourself thin or, well, which one do I focus on? Because <laughs> they all kind of take that process. So do you have any any kind of tips for how to approach that? For sure. I think, you know, start one at a time. That's <laughs> that's the beginning. Um, don't just go and say, here are the four things I'm going to do and I'm going to start tomorrow. Monday is this Tuesday is that like it's not going to work. I promise. Um, start one at a time. And then I think you can be really opportunistic about where, especially, you know, in the example I gave of like consulting and book writing and speaking, you can be opportunistic about where one can support the other. So one of my favorite pieces of advice for someone who wants to write a book is, well, start blogging. Right. Start by writing pieces on LinkedIn or starting a sub stack. If you have a consulting practice and you should be writing blog posts online because that's part of your marketing right? That's content marketing to bring people inbound. And it helps you get into the practice of writing. It helps you really develop ideas. And particularly if you're posting on LinkedIn or sending out a newsletter, you're getting real-time feedback from your audience of, does this idea like blow their mind or have they heard this already? And so it helps you identify where is your niche? What is new that you could offer the world in writing? And then someone comes along and says, I love what you're working on. I'm doing a conference on this topic. Would you be a panelist? Absolutely. 
That is one way to get your foot in the door as you think about a speaking career. You graduate from moderator to panelist to keynote to paid keynote at some point. So you don't have to sit down and say, like, I'm going to write this keynote from the beginning that no one has asked me to do. You wait until there's an opportunity and then you make the work for that opportunity. And if you know that this is the big vision of where you're going, when you have networking coffee chats, you meet someone interesting and they say, how can I be helpful? Instead of saying, I don't know, let's just keep in touch. You can give them a specific ask. I'm actually, I'm kind of looking to build my speaking portfolio. I'm pretty new to it. Um, if you know of any conferences that are looking for someone, an expert on these topics, I would love for you to keep me in mind. Boom. Now they know exactly how they can help you. Yeah. That's great. And I, it's often hard, I think, you know, for myself included, even though I'm liter quite literally in the communications business to communicate about yourself in that way, to put yourself out there, to ask for help, whatever it might be. So so that's an important reminder and a good tip. Are there particular challenges that you find that people often run into in this process of trying to to build something that works for them? I mean, is there a sort of common thread to use your terminology? I, I think the biggest one is probably time management and burnout, right? So I think many people who read it initially are like, I'm already so busy and you want me to do more? <laughs> I'm, I'm exhausted. Um and this is not that. This is not a like work seven days a week, uh, rise and grind hustle culture. I'm, I'm so anti that. This is about intentionally deciding what is on my plate for this season and putting everything else intentionally on the back burner. So part of this requires an audit of how you're spending your time right now and which of those things are serving you? Which of those things are actually helping you get toward the goals you say you have? You might recognize, as I did several years ago when I did this for the first time, you know, I was spending a lot of time, like 10, 12 hours a week, doing random networking coffee chats. People would send people my way and say, oh, she would love to pick your brain, blah, blah, blah. And I felt like I needed to. I had done this to so many people when I was starting out in the startup world that I felt I needed to pay it forward. And so I kept saying yes. And these were really unfulfilling meetings because these were all people I didn't know. They were like second or third degree connections. I never heard from again. I never knew whether my advice was helpful, you know, and it was like, I'm not building relationships here. This is not fulfilling. And so I said, I, I still want to help. I want to be an advisor, but I want to do it in a way that adds to the other things that I care about instead of just feeling like I'm throwing away this time. And so I stopped doing the the one-off meetings. And I became an entrepreneur in residence at Harvard Business School to say, I'm going to be part of a specific program to help a specific cohort of people at a specific stage of their startup journey. And it will be an ongoing relationship. Now, at the time, I did not plan on being a professor here. This was like, purely, I want to do this in a more methodical way. Well, what a great example of what you just said in terms of saying yes to things and building one step at a time. And That's exactly it. Because I was already here, I was top of mind for the administration as they were looking to fill a spot. I had a track record with students. They had evidence, you know, the students rate you after every single conversation of whether or not that was useful. So I had evidence that I was good at this. Um, and I had, you know, I had kept this relationship really strong. So when it came time to make this move, it was a really natural upgrading 
of something already in motion rather than a whole like left turn. Yeah. And it's an important reminder, I think, to people that not everything bears fruit immediately, even though, you know, joining this entrepreneur in residence program, that's maybe not the best example because that's, you know, a clear benefit from the get go. But you might be doing things that you don't completely see the the results of until later when, as you said, you're top of mind for someone, you've kind of laid the groundwork to prepare yourself for the next thing. Exactly. I, I think the opportunistic piece is one of the most important parts of this model. You know, I, I've had students who've read the book and say, OK, what hobbies should I pick up in case they become a really important job in the future? And I was like, that is not the point of this. I promise you it's not. And they say, well, all of your stories, they seem to involve a bit of luck of like, well, I just happened to be doing this when X came along. I was like, yeah, but you've got to be willing to be lucky. And part of being lucky is being prepared and being being present for luck to find you. And so I think in a world that is changing this much, this fast, I know this sounds a little woo-woo, but like you just put a lot of stuff out in the universe and like one of them is going to click, right? And I, I can't tell you how to do it strategically, intentionally, linearly. That's not the point. So So part of this model is simply like do the things you love the things that meet your needs, the things that help you connect to other humans. And something is going to show up that helps you do what you want to do next. Is there is there anything in doing this process for yourself, which I know you went through and, and kind of repeatedly do in different forms that surprised you? I mean, even somebody who's, you know, created this thing and you're so well versed in doing many things. But when you did these kinds of audits and, and doing this in structured form, Did you find yourself surprised about your own life or your own choices? Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest challenge for me is always to stop doing something. It's very easy for me to pick up something extra, something new. Um, And I think, you know, this is back to the identity question. It is always hard for me to take a look at all the things I'm doing and saying, I'm doing that because I've always done it. But it actually doesn't meet any of my needs anymore. It's not bringing me joy. It's not helping me grow. It's not helping me connect to people. So I think I'm done. I think that has completed its course. And I'm going to wrap up that project or that commitment or that community. You know, I've I've had this several times where I've stepped off of a nonprofit board or I've walked away from a choir at the end of a season saying like, this isn't quite doing it anymore. And I, I think that is as much of where you find the space to add the new things is the audit in the same way that like you got to clean out your closet. You got to like go through your pantry. Every once in a while, you're like, how do I have 17 Tupperware bottoms and two Tupperware tops? Right. It's literally. <laughs> yes. I was actually just asking myself that this morning. I don't have an answer. I think it has to do with the, the two and a half year old, but I'm not sure. It does. Guarantee. It might just be a vortex, <laughs> like a hidden vortex somewhere. It's the exact same thing about calendar, right? And and I use calendar as a proxy for your commitments and, you know, your brain capacity, but it's the like go through and t- tell yourself thank you. That was awesome. I don't need this anymore. But before I let you go, Christina, I just I want to ask about one thing that you talk about towards the end of the book as part of the process, but it struck me as something that a lot of people could find useful overall, which is related to network and the people we surround ourselves with. Uh, You talked about mentorship earlier, something that's kind of like thrown around all the time that is a little bit elusive and maybe outdated. You also use this term, the personal board of directors. 
Um, and this, all this stuff is important to everyone, but especially to someone who's not like at a company full time and might have some kind of structure to make that happen. So can you talk a bit about what that is and how people should actually go about doing it? Yeah. So, so this is one of the biggest challenges I've had, certainly as someone who's never worked in a big company um, and doesn't have a like, okay, well, what's the next promotion and what do I have to do to get there? And you know, like that that really clear ladder that get, certainly that previous generations might have had doesn't really exist at all if you are doing something like a zigzag path or you're self-employed, but it hardly even exists for people who have that big company job. So if there isn't that clear path of here's how I move forward and progress in my career and you don't have that designated mentor or career advisor that we used to have, then you have to put it together yourself. And what I think is really empowering about that is that you can find people that you really connect to rather than people you've been assigned to. And you can define what that path looks like based off of your actual ambition, your interests, and not what the company has decided your progression should look like. And I think this is particularly relevant for anyone who have young children and they want to do a sidestep rather than a forward step for a few years, as I have done. I was on a podcast with some uh, male peers who sort of jokingly called this the lean out model. And I was like, well, well I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. It's simply that I have ambition in other dimensions of my life and I am reallocating to meet those ambitions. So I have chosen this chapter for these goals. And um, and again, like I can choose that because it's my portfolio and I have gathered around me my board of directors. You know, they don't, I think maybe one of them knows I consider them on my board of directors. Otherwise, it's not like I got them a t-shirt or like gave them a certificate or anything. But it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a, a group of folks that I go to on a regular basis to ask for advice, to get feedback from. You know, if you don't have a mentor kind of giving you regular feedback, you got to have someone giving you feedback. So I'll get feedback from them. I'll say, am I overthinking this? As well as things like negotiating. You know, I have someone who helps me say like, it's time to raise your rates. Like it's time. Let's go. Yeah. Oh, that's a big one. That's a big yeah. one. Where did you find some of them though? I mean, you, you know, you've obviously built over the years such a big network. I assume, you know, you didn't always have it. And a lot of people don't or feel like they don't have that. Is it sometimes just like cold reaching out to someone on LinkedIn? Is it asking for a to be connected? Yeah, it's it can be both of those, but a little bit like dating. You don't show up in the first meeting saying like, what do you think? Should we get married? Right. I Will you be my mentor? Right. Like we don't say this. Yeah. But it, it can very well be, you know, a, in a very specific moment. I think negotiating is a perfect example. Right. Um, you say like, ah, I'm negotiating an offer for a new job. I have no idea what market rates are. I haven't done this in a while. I don't know how to ask for this. Maybe I'm negotiating and I'm in a minority position and I like I know there are like other things going on in the, the ecosystem that might affect my success here. So you reach out to your friends and say, do you know anyone who could help me negotiate this specific offer in this industry, in this stage of a company right now? And they will, I'm, I promise you, one of your friends knows someone, your second degree network is amazing. You just have to ask so that you meet someone. You've never talked to them before. They help you with this one specific negotiation. It goes well. 
you follow up with them and say, thank you so much for your advice. It worked. I got 10 grand more than I was asking for. Can I stay in touch? Like you clearly know a ton about this particular type of, of you know, skill, this work. I'm still building this skill out. Like, can we stay in touch? And P.S. I would love to be helpful to you. So like, let me know. Right. Yeah. And then you nurture that relationship. You send them that article you came across. You tell them when you helped your friend negotiate using the same advice they gave you. Right. You keep that relationship strong. So it can start from cold uh, outreach. It can start from from intros, but it can also start from looking at who you have. I mean, it could be like a parent of one of your friends who's an executive in that industry. Like, can I bounce this off of them? Yeah. It could be someone that you follow on Twitter or on LinkedIn for a long time that you respect their writing. You've been commenting on their posts for ages. And finally, you reach out and say, I really like your approach to dealing with conflict. I have a specific situation I'm going through. Would you be open to a 10-minute chat? Right? So- it takes a little bit of chutzpah, but I, I think people really appreciate it when you are asking for something specific that they know they can be helpful on, right? No one likes the can I pick your brain email, but people do want to be helpful when they know I, I can help you solve that. Yeah. And I think people would be pleasantly surprised for sure in, in reaching out and, and taking that step the number of people who, if, as you say, it's done right and it's not like a generic thing and there's no follow-up and all that, sure. then, you know, the the number of people who actually are really happy to engage. Absolutely. When doing that. So so that's great advice. And obviously, you know, keeping it up, as you say, it's not just like, oh, thanks so much. And then the person disappears because that's certainly not a formula for a, for a long-term board of directors anyway. <laughs> all right. Now I really promise I'm going to let you go after this last very quick question that I've asked, I think, nearly every woman on the podcast. Uh, but for you, it just, you know, I can't not, which is what do you feel today? It might have been totally different 10 years ago. What is success for you now? Success for me is being able to do what I want when I want it, right? It's it's freedom. And that freedom is both from an autonomy point of view, from a financial freedom point of view, from a I have the you know the relationships in place that allow me to do those things and I have the time to do those things right and and so it's in not something I'm at yet I'm working toward but that's that's a little bit my true north it's I want the freedom to do the things that I care about and the freedom to change my mind about what I care about Oh, I love that. I'm going to steal that as a reminder for myself on a on a sticky note, which also features heavily in the book, which people will find out when they read it. Oh, they do. I really should have bought stock in 3M before right? I promoted their sticky note products so, so vigorously. All right. Well, Christina Wallace, the book is, of course, if uh, if people haven't gotten it yet, the portfolio life, if they didn't get the message or what it's called. Thank you so much <laughs> for taking the time. It's really been a pleasure. It's been wonderful. Thank you. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to follow us on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. And send us your thoughts. We always love to hear what's on your mind. Any questions that you want answered or women you'd like to hear from on Instagram at Life Deconstructed Pod.